0: How do you feel about prayer? Maybe you love it. It's a key part of your life doing business with God. Praying for the people you love most. Interceding for places and politics and mission and peace. You have a system, a routine. You can't think of living without it. It's good. Or maybe your heart sinks. Your praying is pretty hit or miss. You feel a wearying sense of duty, the burden of doing something you find, frankly, difficult. There's a vague sense of guilt, of being, well, a failure. Strong Christians pray a lot, we tell ourselves. But I don't. And the Bible's stuffed with encouragements and countless compelling reasons to pray, commands to pray, motivations to pray, models for prayer. It's all there. We know that prayer is one of the great and glorious mysteries of the universe. One of the most powerful, thoughtful, loving ways we can function as a Christian. Asking the God of infinite power and wisdom and love to move, to change things in the lives of others our friends, our families, our neighbors, our colleagues in the church, across the world, in national and international life. It holds out so much for us. And yet we find a thousand excuses not to pray. If you're chatting to me by any chance after the service, feel free to ask me about growing up in Northern Ireland and coming to faith as a sixth former. Ask me now about um, over 50 years' involvement in this remarkable church family of all souls. Ask me what it's felt like being a Christian barrister and a QC and now for the last nearly 20 years a judge. Ask me about the attempted murder trial I'm going back to at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. But if you want to embarrass me as a Christian, ask me about my prayer life. For I count myself among the strugglers, and I need all the help I can get, more than you know. So that's why I'm glad we're in this little prayer series. We're praying with Paul on these Sunday evenings, for he is one of the great Bible prayers, and I want to learn from him. I want to learn principles and patterns. I want to learn methods and models. I want to see examples and enthusiasm. I want help with what to pray and to know what really matters as I pray. For I have a strong sense that in my own praying, I'm often asking God for less than I should, not more. Oh, I'm okay on the 999 prayers. Most of us are. Safety, health, journeys, jobs, cases, wife, children, grandchildren. That's all fine. I can do desperation. Small prayers come easy. I've no problem with my mind defaulting to practical earthly concerns. And that, of course, is a key part of prayer. We thought that last week in the morning. We looked at the Lord's Prayer itself. But I want, to to get hold of some of those mountain-moving prayers... Prayers like Paul prayed. Doesn't take great spiritual sensitivity to want a sick person well or a healthy person to stay healthy. Even God haters wish a good life for one another. We prayed like hell. I saw that utterly ridiculous comment in the Metro recently where a couple faced some ghastly knife point conf- confrontation. Well, I knew exactly what they meant. Big, Paul-like prayers don't come naturally. They need more grace, more effort, more faith, because sometimes the spiritual realities they reflect don't come so readily to mind. If I pray for someone's job interview, I know in days how that prayer is answered. If I pray for God to make a brother more like Jesus, I may not see real reliable fruit for years. Paul did two wonderful things for the New Testament church. He wrote letters and he prayed. So I like to think as we look at these prayers of Paul, we're sort of walking past his room. And in Colossians, in fact, it's a cell in Rome the door is slightly ajar, and we eavesdrop. Here he is praying for fellow Christians he has never even met personally. And this is no five-minute wonder. He's praying, verse 9, continually. There's a commitment here. Here are his priorities, the things that burden him as he thinks about these Christians he has never even met. What is his passion for these new believers who have, end of verse 5, heard the true message of the gospel. He writes this wonderful, Christ-intoxicated little letter, one of my favorites, to Christians living on the edge of a volcano of false teaching that could erupt to engulf them at any moment. And here he is praying for them. Yeah, If you clicked on the history function of my prayer life, I think I'd be rather ashamed for you to hear its worldliness and self-centeredness. As Don Carson comments in one of his books, our prayers may be an index of how small and self-centered our world is. Well, Paul is so different. Tim Keller in his book on prayer observes, it's a remarkable thing that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in circumstances. Think about that. From his 13 letters, we know literally dozens of ways that Paul prayed for other Christians, and yet he never asks God to change their circumstances. And yet that's what Most of us spend most of our time praying about, isn't it? So, what then does he pray for here? Let me suggest four things, and here's the first gospel thinking, a prayer for spiritual intelligence. Verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. What the gospel began, Paul longs to see continue. That's the significance of that opening phrase, for this reason. Here's why he's praying as he is. They'd come to faith and love and hope, verses 3 and 4. They'd heard the true message of the gospel, verse 5. Verse 6, that gospel was bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. This was the real thing that they had connected to. There was a theme in the false teaching that this mightn't somehow be enough, that there might be more, that there might be something greater, a greater fullness, a sort of inside track to super-spirituality open only to a few initiates. No, says Paul. The glory of the good news, the gospel, is that God has decisively, unequivocally, made us into something different to what we once were. And therefore, the primary course, the sort of curriculum of the Spirit, is to learn who you are now. What God has made you to be, especially your new relationship to Him. That's foundational. You're not your own anymore. You were bought with a price. You're no longer living for yourself. Your will, your pleasure, your comfort, they're no longer primary God now calls you to be what he has made you to be. And the more you understand who you are now and what God has done to make you that, the more your behavior will automatically change and you'll do the things that follow here in this passage. The more also that your praying will change. So Paul wants us to love truth. To know as much of the truth about God, who he is, what he's like, what he's done, as we possibly can. And that means a life of reading and sermon listening and Bible study and engagement with Christians and all the rest. He wants Christian people to love truth, to love doctrine, to understand who God is and what God wants. He wants them to be God-conscious all the time, to know his will. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, these all begin in the mind. And they're the very foundation of the Christian life. As the Puritan William Perkins puts it, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Well, we default so quickly, don't we, to think of God's will in personal terms when we're praying in a sort of individualistic way. You know, where I live, what I'll do, who I'll marry, what what I'll earn, all that, that sort of stuff. This is a bigger prayer, a prayer for us to get the big picture. A prayer that we might be, to quote Paul in, Chapter 2, verse 10, where he probably had the vocabulary of the false teachers in mind. A prayer that helps us be complete, brought to fullness in Christ. A prayer that we may be filled with the knowledge of the will of God that consists in spiritual wisdom, practical know-how to navigate the challenges of life and understanding. A prayer that we'll discover what God thinks about life, how his world works, where it's going, what our part in it is. You know, the will of God in these verses is about overarching reality. And we need to get that. We need spiritual intelligence if we're to live anything like the successful Christian life. Because everything else, frankly, is fantasy. So here's where it begins. Not that we know everything. How absurd. Of course we can. But that we have all the wisdom necessary for making decisions and living to please God. When we live soundly, I'm sorry, when we think soundly, we live wisely. That's understanding. The ability to apply what we believe in everyday life. To do the right things, at the right time, for the right reasons. Most of us who live in London know clever, able people who live foolishly. Because they apply themselves to the wrong kind of knowledge. No, Paul is clear. This is a spiritual thing. This is a prayer for all the wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, the Spirit gives. The miracle of seeing God for who he really is, of making choices and experiencing preferences that fit reality, isn't something you drift into. That's a gift of the Spirit of God. That's what the Spirit does in your life. That's what Paul prays for here. Tim Keller again. Paul does not see prayer as merely a way to get things from God. But as a way to get more of God himself. And because Paul has heard of the Colossians' faith, he prays for them to see and know even more of God deeply. He knows they need supernatural inner strength, not just to receive that, but to experience it and to grow and experience it. Do you pray like that for other believers? Here then's the first theme, gospel thinking, a prayer for spiritual intelligence. Here's the second one, gospel authenticity, a prayer for practical obedience. Do you see the first uh, of two so that's in the passage there at the beginning of verse 10? There's no disconnect between learning and living. They're, they're, they're integral, one with the other. The first prayer leads into the second. Verse 10, so that he prays, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Paul's not just interested here in means, he's interested in ends, in outcomes. Answers here are what we call in management speak evidence-based Here's what happens when a person begins to be filled by the Spirit with the knowledge of God's will. Their life changes. So Paul prays for something very straightforward. That lives may be worthy of the name of Jesus. That we may, well, honor the uniform. Reflect the beauty. Live up to the family likeness. And that, as he puts it elsewhere, that, well, here's what it comes to, that we may walk worthy of our calling, that we may display in the way we live now how worth it God is. Always, and in an every way kind of way. What will others think of God when they're watching you or me? That's the prayer theme. That's, that's Paul's big headline prayer for us. Here's a prayer that we will, as he puts it in Galatians 5.25, keep in step with the Spirit. Christian service, effective service, is always the result of Christian devotion. Are we making Jesus look good by our lives, our students, musicians, homemakers, parents, judges, medics, retired people? You know, if you're a Christian, it's so much more than being saved and going to heaven when you die. In the title of that little Malcolm Muggeridge book, it's about being something beautiful for God. Today. Tomorrow morning. It's all about new passion pleasing him. New identity. New productivity. Do you see that? Bearing fruit in every good work, verse 10. Knowing God better, more intimately than ever before, verse 10. Growing in the knowledge of God. Holiness shows. You can see it. Obedience is the key. Being like Jesus works. It changes you. Pleasing God also Blesses other people. That's the dynamic. You know, knowing God is the most exciting thing that will ever happen to you. Do do you believe that? It's the secret of excitement and vitality in a life. People who know God are never bored. For the opposite of knowing God is boredom. And if you're bored as a Christian, it's because you don't adequately know your God. In his presence, it's impossible to think of anything else. There are possibilities we can only dream of. And the more you get to know God, the more that knowledge changes your hearts, changes your motives, changes what you want, and how you behave, and how you live, and ultimately how you pray yourself. And the more of Christ you know and enjoy, the more like him you will become. To know God means you're always tuned in and turned on about everything because you see God's hand everywhere. In nature, in the people you meet, in trials, in hardships, in challenges, in setbacks. That's why the people of God are so often good to be with. Paul's praying here for their Christian authenticity, their obedience, their holiness, and he's making clear as he does that the way to grow up is not to grow past the gospel, but to put deep roots even more deeply down into what God has already done in your life. That's what Jesus spoke about when he talked to the woman at the well in John 4.14, and he spoke of a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, gospel thinking, a prayer for spiritual intelligence. Gospel authenticity, a prayer for practical obedience. Here's a third theme. Gospel power, a prayer for patient endurance. It's there in verse 11. A prayer to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. I think this has really struck me again as I've been reflecting on this passage. Where is God's power seen today? In growing dynamic churches, massive rallies, impressive miracles, incredible singing and worship? The glorious might of God, which provides all power, is found in Christians enduring and being patient. I was reminded of the little Spurgeon quote by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. That's the miracle. That you become a believer and keep on being a believer, come what may. And that may take nothing less than the whole power of God to sustain you. Feels a bit, well, a bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? The mighty power of God, what's it doing? It's keeping us going as Christians. Endurance and patience. Keeping going. Not giving up. Not expecting to be exempt from pain. Not being caught by surprise when life hurts. When the redundancy notice, the divorce petition, the medical letter arrives and life feels it's falling apart. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses in The Message. He gets it well. We pray that you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. Not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength God gives. It's the strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. Jonathan Edwards is probably the greatest philosopher, theologian that the U.S. has ever produced. He died at 54 on the 22nd of march 1758 from reaction to a smallpox inoculation he was a fan of inoculation and he decided to encourage others to get inoculated too and he did it himself he left behind 11 children and when the news reached sarah his wife she wrote to her daughter what shall i say a good and holy God has covered us with a dark cloud, but he has made me adore his goodness that we have had him for so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart, and oh, what a legacy your father and my husband has left us. Well, where does all that come from? Where does, where does that sort of thinking come from isn't that great endurance and patience what the colossians need more than anything given their situation and what many of us need given our situations is simply an ability to carry on and that's what paul prays he prays for an endurance that is way beyond human capacity Endurance is what we need in response to painful, trying, difficult circumstances. And patience is what we need in response to wearying, unreasonable, draining people. And they're both active and affirmative qualities which are pretty rare in a world that expects quick fixes and instant solutions in every situation. And this strength can only come from God. And that's why Paul prays for it. Here's a prayer to stick at Christian living. Come what may, whatever we face, I need someone praying that for me. And maybe you do too. Gospel thinking, a prayer for spiritual intelligence. Gospel authenticity, a prayer for practical obedience. Gospel power, a prayer for patient endurance. And then finally, a fourth one, gospel gratitude, our prayer for joy-filled thanksgiving. There it is in verse 12. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It echoes where Paul was when he started back in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is a letter filled with thanksgiving. We're to be people, chapter 2, verse 7, overflowing with thankfulness. The call to peace in church life, chapter 3, verse 15, is a call to be thankful. Then a couple of verses later, chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Doing what? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here then's another mark of the authenticity we pray for. A cheerful, grateful spirit. See, gratitude is a sort of barometer of our spiritual health, I think. In New Testament terms, we learn in Romans one twenty one, ingratitude to God reveals a soul-rotting idolatry. And Paul, as a prayer, is never done with thanksgiving. And of course, it's grounded in that glorious backstory, which now shapes the lives of each one of us who are believers, which Paul fills in, in verses 12 to 14. Do you see that? We haven't time to unpack the detail. But again, it's the story of the gospel. See, we're not called to pretend that we're good or sorted out kind of people. But we are, verse 12, qualified people. We're qualified for an inheritance we did nothing to earn, for privileges we don't deserve, for riches beyond our imagining. We have new paternity and a new position. We've gone through a sort of exodus, Mark 2. We're rescued from a darkness that was completely overwhelming us. And we're grafted into an entirely new story. We're brought into a kingdom from a state of utter unwantedness and unlovedness. We were enemies of God and all that's gone. Because we've been forgiven every sin... We've had every debt cancelled. We can begin each day with a fresh and clean slate, with the burden of guilt gone, and God on our side, loving us. When God looks at us, he's delighted because he thinks only of Jesus. And, you know, that's why every feeble, pathetic prayer we utter to our Father pleases him. It's worth doing. And if there isn't raw material here in this backstory for Thanksgiving, it's hard to know where, where else we'll find it. So there we are. Time is already gone. Praying with Paul. Gospel thinking. A prayer for spiritual intelligence leading to a life spent pleasing God. Gospel authenticity, a prayer for practical obedience, leading to a life doing good. Gospel power, a prayer for patient endurance, a life lived experiencing the staying power of God. And then finally, gospel gratitude, a prayer for joy-filled thanksgiving, a life spent rejoicing in the staggering privileges of all that it means to be a Christian. Can you think of any more appealing things to pray for one another than these? These four? Is this how you're, you're, we're praying for one another? For others here in the church family? For your own family? For your friends? For your life group? For your church, for our church leadership? I can remember John Stott saying here that, you know, the real battle in prayer takes place on what he called the threshold. John used to talk about the battle of the threshold. Prayer is not so much the struggle. The struggle is to get down to it, to get on with it, and to keep going in it. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will divert us and distract us. But remember, we pray in Jesus, and he is the great prayer. And that makes me a great prayer too, because I'm praying in him. The only question is, will I do it? So let Paul stimulate our prayers this coming week. Let uh, this passage help us get over the threshold into prayer. Let's take these words and themes and make them our own and see how we can enrich our praying for one another to God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, open our minds to your will, our lives to your service, our wills to your power, our hearts in gratitude for all that you are to us, and then our lips to be people of praise and prayer and passion, like Paul. We ask it that you may be glorified in all that we think and do. For your name's sake, amen.